This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. Today, we're broadcasting live from Sirius XM headquarters in New York at our new time, noon Eastern, every Friday. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. We have an amazing show today in the studio here in New York. We're going to talk fintech, blockchain technology, uh, with two guests in the studio, Dan Doney, CEO of Securency, a blockchain-based financial technology infrastructure company, uh, and Will Peck, a director of corporate strategy at Wisdom Tree, who's been studying this space and fintech generally with us over the last few years. Uh, but before we turn to this, this technology conversation, Professor Siegel, the markets do not want to go down. New highs every day this year, 29,000. What's going on? Well, you know, it's interesting. I went on both Bloomberg and CNBC this week. What I told all the people on the show last week, so you guys on this show get the preview of what what I said. I'm worried about the pace of of the increase. Listen, yes, I I love new highs in stocks and yes, it's it's it it's it's very good. Um I'm just wondering if we're running a little bit ahead of ourselves here. Um I mean, we've almost got a rise of 10%, you know, this year and uh that's what I thought was going to be for the whole year. I mean, certainly good things are certainly happening. I mean, housing starts wow, and I saw that uh, this morning. There's a lot of good economic news, but basically, I mean, the people I follow on GDP, um, actually, fourth quarter is ending a little softer than we thought a couple weeks ago, um, and I think actually J.P. Morgan marked it down to one and a half. I think it's going to be oh two or a little bit above, but we're not. You know, it's not a blowout growth, and earnings are still um, okay, but not bursting at the rate that would justify such a fast increase. So I, I'm saying, you know, if you're long-term investors, stay with equities, no question. Um, I mean, on a long-term basis, they're fine. But on a short-term basis, I'm worried about a repeat of January t- 2018, where we had a very steep run-up um, and then uh, a sharp February reaction. Um, I would prefer I would prefer a more moderate increase in equities. That being said, look at the Fed is on hold. The the money markets are are very calm. Uh, the volatility day to day. There was a big article in today's Wall Street Journal that you know that's something like 68 days of less than one percent moves in the S and P. Um, which is uh, about seventh or eighth biggest of the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, uh, that, but, but what that leads to is, again, the trend followers, the momentum players so that jump on a trend, say, I'm staying on it until it begins to tilt and come off. Um, and that brings about later volatility in the market. Yeah, so in, is it different when you look around the world? Is it, is it just this U.S. phenomena, or you know, is that maybe that's well, we, one of the places the better, to find value? The better performance around the world and in Europe is more fundamentally based. Uh, they are actually, I think, having a turnaround in a turnaround in earnings. So I, I actually feel more confident about that um, uh, yeah. than, th- than I do on the U.S. in terms of, of the, the staying, staying power. I mean, we still have you know, PEs in Europe are still 15 or or, or lower. Uh, while we know the S&P now is selling at 20 times this year's uh, moderate 
estimated earnings, which I, I count as a 5% increase. And um, even 20 is not terrible at all. But again, you know, from history, it, it is not cheap. So again, you know, if you're a short-term player, hey, stay with this trend. It's, it's probably going to be there a while. And by the way, one thing that, that makes me feel it might be there for a while is that the VIX, which is a kind of, as, as we know, a volatility indicator, sort of a fear indicator, is at 12.2. Um, it got down in January of 2018 down to 9. I mean, that shows how much confidence and complacency there was in the market two years ago. We are not at that level now, <laughs> which means this, this ride could you know, continue a lot longer. Maybe bring us. Uh, you know, listen, we're in, to Dow thirty thousand. We're six hundred and thirty-one points away. That's two plus percent by the end of. I mean, it's possible by the end of the next week we could yeah. we could even be there. Any um, things that would be the catalyst you'd be looking for? I mean, last year was all China and the Fed. Um, yeah. What's what do you think? The, well, the you know, story? Fed is on hold. China trade one agreement. Middle East is simmered down. Of course, a potential blow up at any time. Um, uh, you, you know, I, I would say that if all of a sudden one of the FANG stocks or or one of the stocks for which expectations are high is saying, "Ooh, we're not seeing the type of growth we want." Um, uh, the international invest. Don't forget the dollar is also very, very important. If the dollar gets stronger, that's going to challenge some of the international, you know, uh, flows uh, that uh, the U.S. corporations have. I mean, you know, any any little when you're when you're on a high PE and you're on a trend momentum, any little rock on the road because um, you're going so fast could upset your cart um and uh you know it's 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 really hard to say in advance as i'm saying keep your eyes on the market stay with it if you're there even if you're a trader it's not it's not tipped off yet but uh my feeling is is that um we're going to have a reaction at some time soon and uh as a result don't get too over euphoric about today's market well, Professor, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts to start us off. Have a great okay, weekend. and we'll be there next week. Bye. Sounds good. All right, so Professor ended on a, a technology FANG-type uh, discussion, and I'm going to bring in our two guests here in the studio, Dan Doney, the CEO of Securency Blockchain-Based Financial Services Infrastructure to Banks, other financial service providers, and Will Peck, uh, Director of Corporate Strategy at WisdomTree, who is sort of one of our foremost experts at WisdomTree on this subject. Uh, and so, Will, maybe just it, kicking it off to you to start, what got – Wisdom Tree, you really passionate about sort of blockchain technology, its role in financial services, uh, and had, then we can sort of introduce how you got into meeting Dan. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, great to be back on the show, Jeremy. You know, I think we were um, probably about three years ago now. Uh, our CEO asked um, me and my team to really look into the space. Uh, you know, with the idea that structure is important for investors, and that improvements in structure through technology can deliver better investor outcomes. And his, uh, his kind of mandate to us was, is there, you know, kind of a foundational element of wisdom tree as a firm is that the ETF structure is superior to the mutual fund structure as a way for investors to access the market. And uh, his mandate was, is there things out there that can enhance the ETF structure, that the ETF structure can kind of play in a new way? Or, or how is this going to uh, kind of, could this play out going forward? And one of the, uh, we were, looked at a lot of different things. And one of the things we found was, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but it certainly seems like there are elements of blockchain technology that could enhance the investor experience. They could either improve ETFs in some way, or there could be some other angle that could be building off this technology, um, all with the idea about uh, improving the investor experience. Uh, so we met with a lot of different firms, did kind of a whole landscape study, uh, and we were very fortunate to meet uh, the Securency team probably last spring. Um, so today, uh, very recently, we announced we led a $17.65 million Series A investment in currency. We've got a bunch of great co-investors. Uh, you know, there's been a number of me uh, pieces in the media on this, uh, and we're very excited to talk about it today. Um, so I I'd highlight three things before we turn it over to Dan as to why we like currency in particular. Uh, their first is their compliance focus. You know, compliance is really the foundation of financial services. KYC, AML, those are core table stakes for any financial service product. And for people who are KYC, AML, lingo, what is it? Oh, know your, um, know your customer, know your client, and uh, anti-money laundering. 
So ensuring that the uh, financial services you provide are not being used to go to places they shouldn't around the world, you know, terrorists, drug financing, that's kind of the extreme version of it. But it's ensuring, and Dan can definitely talk more about this, that you are meeting the uh, the rules and regulations set forth by the U.S. and other uh, global governments. Um, the second piece I'd highlight, and this is a little bit in the weeds, is that currency has a unique multi-ledger approach. They're ledger agnostic. What this essentially means is that they are not trying to be in a race to kind of build the best technology for all applications. They're trying to build on top of that in a way that makes them more usable to uh, end users. I think I got that right, Dan. Uh, and the third thing, and we can talk a lot more about this, is that uh, Dan and the rest of the team have a very unique background, a lot of experience in the U.S. military, U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, which led them to be very early days at looking at a lot of this stuff. Um, so uh, with that, you know, Dan, I guess turn it over to you. Yeah, Dan, what is, tell us about, I mean, your background is sort of in the intelligence. How did that get you interested in blockchain technology and, and how you founded currency? Well, I've been uh, a jack of all trades in, in the technology world. I started as a kid uh, coding as a teenager, writing, I grew up on a farm, cattle auction programs for uh, my parents and, and other farmers in the region went on to uh, Naval Academy MIT and then entered the AI world um, post 9-11 working for the National Security Agency. So I was always focused on AI algorithm development. Um, as I progressed through my career, I went to the Defense Intelligence Agency and uh, had a just probably the best job in government, the chief innovation officer there. So it was my responsibility to really scan the technology horizon and, and help the agency use the best of uh, the technologies that were coming over the horizon. And one of those technologies was certainly blockchain um, as a, a critically important technology. Now, our interest in 2012, um, when I when I first saw blockchain, was in disrupting the bad networks that that were using blockchain. So, in 2012, almost every transaction that was occurring via Bitcoin was for illicit purposes. Um, Silk Road was was on its way to its peak, and so there was a lot of trafficking going on using uh, Bitcoin. What was interesting about Bitcoin's underlying technology, blockchain is all of the transactions that are taking place are represented on a transparent immutable ledger. So that's the first key point of this is really what underlies cryptocurrencies is blockchain, a transparent immutable ledger. What that means is every transaction that took place was visible. So we could see all of the illicit activity occurring on the networks. Um, in fact, there's very easy patterns that can be traced regarding, um, for example, ransomware, yeah. Um, theft and exfil, laundering activities, et cetera. The patterns stick out like a sore thumb. But the missing piece was identity. The other key characteristic, again, is it's an immutable ledger. So someone can't go back later and cook the books to cover up what happened. So I certainly saw at that point that it was an important technology, but it was missing an important piece, which was identity. So identity, all through human history, Anytime there are anonymous transactions um, between parties, when you get an effective way to move money without oversight, guess what happens next? Bad things. Um, People say that about cash. Like, why do you need cash today besides for illicit transactions? It, it's, it's absolutely, and we see in many societies, folks are going cashless, but here's the difference. With cash, it's really hard for me to cart a million dollars of cash um, over the border to go to, say, North Korea. With Bitcoin, uh, you know, and I can click a button bars. in with a few minutes, right? So, it's the the scale of it. Yeah. You know, even look compared to the rest of the the financial services, even at you know billions of dollars worth of transactions a, a day, it's small by comparison. But it had the potential to become big, and and certainly, actually, a real marker for me was um, the first time I saw a, an overlay that had Bitcoin track um, transactions tied to human trafficking. And so we could see how the technology is being used to, to move around traffic humans. Well, what I can say for sure for, for the, the true Bitcoin, you know, the purists, almost the nihilists and anarchists, is I will tell you that it is always true that governments care about these things. It's their responsibility to step in and stop this kind of activity. So what 
what I also saw from that time was, again, there is an opportunity to make this right. To, to do know it. your customer, to be able to do it, but not, you know, do you have a, per, a percentage of all the Bitcoin that's out there today, like of the total market value of the Bitcoin? I think it's what, like 200 billion or something like it's that? It's an easy number to come around. I, I think it's less than that now. I think it peaked at about 200 billion. But, um, but what is the percent that's from illicit activity of, of people who are bad actors who have it? Do you have a sense? It, um, my my guess is that it's a probably less than ten percent now. That's just a wild guess, yeah. um, because there's much more legitimate commerce that that happens with blockchain. But even that's, um, you know, the kind of thing that 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 folks can care about. Now, there's other currencies, cryptocurrencies that are really designed purely for anonymity, and I can tell you that the percentages would be much higher in in those cases. Um, folks are doing those transactions for the wrong purposes. Well, so with that story. What I recognized was, again, if you could combine the transparent immutable ledger with uh, an identity service, you have a better mechanism. The U.S. dollar, by the way, is used for more illicit transactions than Bitcoin Yeah. overall. It's harder to track U.S. dollars um, in terms of where they go because you have to go in and do an audit on a bank, et cetera. Um, it, it, it's, it's more difficult to actually do the analysis. It can be done, of course. Um, and there are people who do cook the books uh, as a practical matter. So blockchain offers a better way. They just weren't, this wasn't prevalent in the early days of blockchain. We came in with a focus on this and, and making a better financial services infrastructure. One that would, you know, there's clear value in being able to transmit value anywhere in the world safely. That, that has real utility. If you can do it safely and in a compliant way, um, it's it's transformational. So for people listening, so, all right, so you're, a lot of this blockchain technology is anonymous, and, and we'll talk about you need to know your customer, anti-money laundering. What is the role of currency in this whole ecosystem? Who are you targeting as clients, applications of what you're trying to do in this space? Yeah, the central, the, the main part of our technology framework really comes down to two focus areas. One is on compliance and second is in, on interoperability. That is making these, these services available to banks and, and traditional providers as well as new, new providers in the space. So our compliance role, there's a lot of um, new participants in the space who um, offer KYC services, that is identity proofing mechanisms that allow you to, like for example, scan your driver's license, match your face, etc. That proofs you are who you say you are as you perform a digital transaction um, within the system. But there's actually more required than that. You need to know what jurisdiction, what laws apply for the transaction that you're engaging in. When you engage in transactions with securities, there are laws that the securities fall under. There are specific requirements in each country according to uh, their legal framework. What this means is when you have a, a technology like a token that can move anywhere in any market, it needs to be able to respect, understand and respect the laws of every yeah. market that it touches. And that's not an easy challenge. We focused on solving that challenge and it opens up the mechanism. This this much of the inefficiency in the banking system. So people say, ah, banks, that's the old guard. And it's true, they're, they're, they are inefficient. Most of that inefficiency has to do with the compliance function, not being able to do it well. If you can automate it, you can just change the, the very cost model of the way that financial services are delivered. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you think about one of the, the nice features about trading Bitcoin on your mobile wallet. You trade it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why did the New York Stock Exchange close and we can't trade global securities? But, you know, you're saying there's legal regulations all around the world. I'll tell you why it closes. As a practical matter, it's how slow things close, how slow a transaction closes, meaning how long it takes to settle that particular transaction. So, you know, overnight, there's a lot of settlement going on. That's with, with blockchain settlement occurs immediately well it's kind of funny let, let I mean, me just reintroduce our guest real quick we got dan doney the ceo of currency will peck director of corporate strategy at wisdom go ahead will i was just gonna say i mean it's kind of funny if you think back to how stocks and securities used to trade i mean they're just a bunch of people running around on wall street with uh, sheets of paper kind of going back and forth and like that eventually ended up being like such a mess that they had to implement things like dtcc that everyone came in so this can definitely be seen as being part of the evolution of this um but i think a big part of it too is this 
automated compliance, you know, compliance, like Dan said, it takes time today and banks have a responsibility to make sure that every transaction that they're enabling is a compliant transaction. If they're not doing it, they can get into a lot of trouble, obviously, like you saw a few years ago with HSBC and some other things where that gets, you know, huge issues for banks. That's why banks have such massive compliance departments. And if you're able to use smart contracts, and that's really one of the biggest innovations I think that we saw in blockchain is the ability to encode within the transaction itself, kind of smart light or logic you could encode logic that would enable you to determine yes dan you're eligible to receive the security and no jeremy you're not and being able to enforce that in the act instead of having to do it over a course of days with a compliance person reviewing it you want to know you're not selling gold to iran if you're not allowed to sell gold to iran absolutely yeah think of that how trans how revolutionary that concept is if i could have a, a dollar bill which knows what it's allowed to do and doesn't allow itself to be misused, or the share of one of Wisdom Tree's funds that understands the law and, and can enforce it at the transaction level. And so how far do you think you are away from being able to trade things in, in sort of this tokenized world, fully compliant with laws, like where you are today with the technology and sort of a vision for the future? Like how far is it? Well, you already see the the early days of trading of, of security tokens. Frankly, the markets are not liquid. Um, the assets are not high quality. So it's possible, um, and, and it, it occurs. And they're not compliant with securities law. Well, so I, I would say that the trading that's occurring is compliant with securities law, but in a way that's, that's very limited uh, in what we would call a walled garden model. So in other words, people let... Um, investors in they qualify them into a small market okay. that's fragmented that's not transformational the otc market is really that that same way but when you apply these technologies it opens things up and so um when when do we see it of course it's uh there is an sec approval process ahead for the the what wisdom tree intends on this we don't foresee any obstacle that it would should be a showstopper in in terms of the approach. We've carefully designed this to be consistent with the the legal framework, but it's di very difficult to predict exactly how long that process will take. But we do think within within the next year or so, mm. um, you'll see high quality assets that are strongly priced that um, can. Uh, uh, trade freely in people's wallets. Yeah, I think it's going to be an evolution in terms of how things evolve, right? Like you obviously need the uh, the market demand, the big liquidity venues to come in and provide more access to this. It's like any kind of new technology development. It'll certainly be kind of an evolutionary process. Um, yeah, and of course, you know, like a uh, high regulatory touch company, you need to make sure that the uh, the regulators are kind of fully on board and understanding and approving what you're thinking of doing. So uh, can't talk too much about that, obviously, but um, you know, it certainly is a, you know, it's early stages, but it's kind of, you're seeing more and more stuff kind of come into this market, um, you know, in a, kind of an accelerating pace. I mean, well, you framed it as looking, your mandate was to look for structures that could it be improvements over the traditional ETF structure. Like, what do you think on these tokenized securities or whatever this tokenized wrapper is, what are the main benefits of that? Yeah, you know, it's funny, I actually kind of, that was the initial mandate, and the way I framed it has kind of changed. I think there's enhancements to the ETF structure, but there's also using the ETF structure to enhance the investor experience in kind of the, the crypto universe today. So like in the, you know, in crypto, and you know, you can go on into any of the exchanges, there are certain products that they'd call stable coins or things that are stable value products that, um, you know, uh, they exist under a certain regulation, you know, not considered securities today, um, and there may not be full benefits that you can achieve from it. So like if you want to do something like I want to be paid interest on my dollars. So if I'm parking cash somewhere uh, in a token, I'd like to be able to continue to receive interest on it. That technology does not exist today in, in that current form. There's things where you can like deposit in an account somewhere. But if you bring the ETF structure to that market, there's things like involving market makers, APs, you know, you've got certain tax advantages. There's a lot of benefits of the ETF structure that instead of trading on the New York Stock Exchange, you could trade it on you know, Digital Exchange X instead. And that's really the only big difference. But on Digital Exchange X, some of the enhancement could be instant settlement. So uh, the ledger, every time the ledger prints, you've got a new settlement as opposed to T plus two settlement that exists in the market today for the most part. Um, that's a big element of it too. Full transparency. So the ETF is obviously a very transparent structure. You can go on Wisdom Tree's website and see the underlying holdings of the ETF at every single day, which is really a revolutionary concept compared to what mutual funds used to do. 
uh, with blockchain technology. You can have that full look through fully transparently at all points of the day. And not to, you don't need to go to Wisdom Tree's website. You can go to the blockchain yeah. and you can see exactly what's been happening. And, you know, those are, you know, incremental improvements, but incremental improvements really add up and potentially create a better investor experience for people. What else would you add, Dan? Yeah, so I, I think this does, in, in the long run, affect the cost of operations. So there, uh, we've, we've got structures in mind to allow you to automate the back office functions associated with fund management for, for transparency reasons as well as for cost reasons. Um, as there's pr price compression um, in the market, this allows the, the, the asset managers to run the funds cheaper. And of course, that allows investors then to get greater value, greater yield out of the same instruments. We're also excited about the possibility for greater distribution. So one of the the big benefits of blockchain is accessibility. Like you said, you can use whatever your favorite wallet is. Um, you can download it here in the U.S. or um, in uh, another in uh, Italy or in Nigeria or in South Korea, and use that instrument conveniently um, with all sorts of different. Uh, interfaces. So greater distribution, of course, means more assets under management for the exchange-traded fund market. And these instruments, they offer the promise of having something you don't typically get from a security. Securities have no utility. I can't use my shares of Apple for transactions. I can cash them in for dollars and then use it, but I can't use them directly. You can imagine a world where you have a treasury-backed instrument, for example, that can actually be used for transactions, has real utility. It's yeah. I mean, you see that like you go to China and you hear about you know the the WhatsApp the, the WeChat where you're paying with your phone. Why are we using anything but the phone to pay for certain things? Is there a reason why you think China could be a leader in some of this versus the U.S.? Do you think the U.S. how quickly we'll get to paying with our our phones everywhere? Well, I mean, you're starting to be able to do that in the U.S. today. It's funny you mentioned China. Obviously, you know, people talk about like in the financial services industry. China, there's no financial advisors really in China. Everyone is just getting the, they're accessing investment products just directly over their phone. Like the largest mutual fund in the world is a money market fund available on uh, Ant Financial uh, via their platform in China, which is a really kind of crazy concept when you think about it. Um, so, and then China's almost, since they, they developed, they kind of were made rich more recently, they certainly skipped some of these interim steps that you see in more developed countries. So you see a lot of, uh, you see a lot of innovation in that respect there. And like, you can look at digital cash. We talk about it like, you know, on uh, WeChat, they're Tencent. They're all using uh, digital cash in the way that's how they're paying each other, just like Venmo is doing here in the United States. It's certainly the kind of thing where we need to pay attention. We can't afford to lose our edge in um, innovating in finance. You see that in, in markets where landlines were impractical, cell phone adoption grew much faster than it did here in the United States. Same thing's true here. But when you can do finance much more efficiently, what that means is you can allocate capital to opportunity, which means you can drive your economy much more efficiently. It's the kind of thing where our country can't afford to miss out. And, and one of the things I actually have always really enjoyed and respect about Dan is he's thought about the implications of this in frontier markets, for sure. How the uh, It's one thing in the United States, you know, there's marginal improvements here where, you know, uh, on some of the edges, but you can, if you want to get access to capital, generally you can find a way to get access to capital. In emerging market and other frontier markets, that's not the case at all. It's much more challenging to get access to capital if you're trying to build a business or something like that. Depending on where you are, it's challenging, and this has a huge implications for like loans, so like business loans in those markets. And uh, I know Dan has a a vision and a thought, which obviously has benefits to the currency, but I think has a lot of benefits to developing economies as well as to how this could evolve. We're talking about the currency's role in the blockchain infrastructure space, where transactions were going, technology was going, um, and we're talking about like what are the use cases for Securency's technology? Who are the types of clients, customers? And we sort of talked about banks as being one beneficiary of using blockchain infrastructure. Well, you brought up an example of how JP Morgan has started using the blockchain in their examples. Do you want to give that example? Yeah, I think you saw, and this is an internal JP Morgan only kind of closed wall system, but essentially JP Morgan kind of announced JPM coin, uh, which was built on Quorum and an offshoot of Ethereum. 
And uh, the idea behind it was essentially to enable more instantaneous settlements of dollar transactions. So JPM coin kind of tied to the dollar, but essentially internal settlements and books and records. And obviously for JP Morgan, even if it's a walled garden, it's a huge walled garden uh, and greater adoption of that can obviously increase efficiency internally. But, you know, I think that type of lesson can be applied to lots of different places, uh, which uh, currencies technology can be relevant for. Dan, why do you think we need JPM coin versus just transacting in dollars? Or what? how else would, would banks use your, your technology? So in the absence of a JPM coin in within JP Morgan, they have different databases where they have to align those databases. And that process requires settlement and overnight settlement or intraday settlement. And all of those, the, any time delay there costs money in the end in, in the world of finance. Now, in our case, we offer the same basic structure that is uh, a coin. You can back it by, you, you can create a coin for your own internal settlement processes or between banks. It's not, th the big difference being, it's not a walled garden approach. So we've emphasized from early on the, a ledger agnostic approach. What that, what that means is you can use various blockchain ledgers. You can use public ledgers or, or private ledgers for these transactions. So your tokens, your instruments of value are not locked into any specific technology or technology provider. But they're also not locked into a closed wall where JP Morgan, you know, it's great if you're one of JP Morgan's clients, you get access to this technology. But if you're a competitor to JP Morgan, maybe you don't want to use JP Morgan's infrastructure. And so we've created tools that, that allow you to get outside of walled gardens and engage in these transactions globally between partners, between banks and their clients, et cetera. So we make it easy for a bank to integrate this new technology into their existing services. And do you, and you think the function, so there's definitely reducing costs, making it more streamlined and internally. Do you think that leads towards this sort of payments infrastructure? You go to a store and you got to pay. I mean, you could use Apple Pay is like one of the big technologies online uh, or digitally with your mobile. Like, where do you see that goes out, outside? Uh, no question. So this, the implicate, our, our technology, our core infrastructures is capable of supporting payments. It's, it's capable of supporting remittance in, in general, securities transactions, and, and beyond. Commodities transactions, it, transactions of individual assets. So there are a lot of potential use cases for these technologies. Payments is an obvious benefit. Now, we, you talked about one of the benefits, expanding the pie beyond, say, the U.S. borders to, like, global markets. And actually, one of the investors in your Series A financing round was um, some of the international sovereign wealth funds, I believe. Do you want to talk about Abu Dhabi as a location that you guys have some office space for and, and Abu Dhabi's interest in currency? Yes, we have a, a close relationship with the, the regulators, especially in Abu Dhabi, but um, it's a place where we've chosen to, to set up shop. Um, we have a bigger team there than, than we have in the U.S., and it's been a very favorable market. So the decision process behind going into that market, we, we weren't sure. In 2015, um, 2016, the direction the U.S. would go in terms of a regulatory framework. So we didn't want to put all our eggs in one basket. We, we knew and we intended always to be regulatory compliant. Uh, that was a, a priority of ours. You just didn't know if a regulator was going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you get stuck. So we looked at the other world markets and our focus has always been on liquidity. And so we were looking for for marketplaces that needed liquidity. And the, the Middle East is characterized by very large sovereign wealth funds, huge investments in real estate um, and energy funds. So that was a market that lacked liquidity. Um, the other real benefit of that marketplace is it's very, very centrally located for every other market but the U.S. So it's a short flight to European markets, to the Asian markets, etc. So we shut up shop there and sure enough, um, it was exactly the right estimation. Um, as we went there, the sovereigns are intent on uh, harnessing the value. Uh, they need to pivot their economies away from oil economies. And so they're looking for these new value sources to enhance trade, et cetera. Uh, it, what the regulators there knew is they had to do it the right way. So they needed a technology that would not leave them stuck on networks that, where the, techno, the, the value was being used for illicit purposes. So they needed compliance tools to layer over top of the basic blockchain technology. And as we walked in, we were given a fantastic opportunity to work directly with the regulators there, who are among the most progressive, forward-leaning, sophisticated regulators in the world. 
And that's opened many doors around the world. And so when we came back and, uh, you know, had meetings with the SEC, we were well prepared. We knew exactly the kinds of issues, the kinds of things that they needed. We had already been challenged on those issues with the regulators in, in Abu Dhabi. So we love that market. And um, in many ways, we're thriving um, through close connections there. Very good. So as you think about that, I mean, we talked, Professor Siegel said there, you know, some of the big political risk today is all the geopolitics in the Middle East. And how do you see, you know, the Middle East situation developing, where Abu Dhabi's role in, is in that, and just what they're doing on, as your point of trying to invest outside of oil? That That's right. You know, um, the UAE is one of the leaders in the region as a, a very uh, progressive, moderate, forward-leaning government. So it's it, again, it's it's very easy for folks from from various marketplaces to to come into the region, but we are a global company, so we're addressing um, again through relationships that we establish there, entry into Singapore, into London, um, into other European markets and beyond, um, a, as a practical matter. So we're we're moving hmm. broadly. Well, anything you would add on sort of the. It's from an investor standpoint, getting the sort of group invested from from Abu Dhabi and who else is involved? Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know it's really a fantastic group of investors. Uh, the Abu Dhabi Investment Office, as you uh, said, uh, Japanese financial services giant uh, Monex Group, uh, and then a series of venture capital firms: uh, RRE Ventures, Strawberry Creek Ventures, and uh, Panthera Capital, which is also based uh, in the Middle East. So it's a great group of co-investors have also validated the the thesis of the investment thesis of Securency. Uh, in terms of Abu Dhabi itself, you know, I'll be traveling there in February uh, with the Securency team and, and very excited to experience the region. There was obviously a big piece recently in the New York Times magazine uh, regarding uh, Abu Dhabi and its leader, or the UAE and its leader. Um, so obviously, you know, very interesting political times we're in right now, but it's certainly, as a place to do business, is seeming to be one of the best places in the world to shut up, set up shop and do business these days. Any other comments on just the politics of the region from your background in security and uh, in, in intelligence? I was going to say, you ask him as a CEO or as a as, former as an intelligence uh, agent. What does he know? <laughs> what can he tell us? Well, transformation is coming broadly. And I, I think when you see moderate leaders like you see in the UAE who are really moving to uh, to have their economies emerge on the world stage, it becomes a favorable environment. So in, in the same way as we were talking about um, earlier in in the uh, the radio segment, countries have an opportunity to leapfrog sometimes when they're coming from behind, and when an economy, when a government realizes it wants to remake its economy, they can do things exactly right, and you see that in in those settings. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Dan Doney, the CEO of Securency, a blockchain-based financial services infrastructure technology company, Will Peck, Director of Corporate Strategy at Wisdom Tree, uh, about the sort of future of financial infrastructure technology, blockchain-based. Um, we haven't quite talked about you know the the blockchain crypto element that people have talked you know are focused on. I mean, we talked a little bit about Bitcoin and the sort of illegal use case. They haven't approved a ETF for Bitcoin in the U.S. People have been trying and they keep get rejected. Any comments on Bitcoin as an asset class, the future of it, um, its use, why we think it hasn't gotten approved? Well, I, I think I'll answer first, kind of from my perspective, as I think you've seen a lot of use cases around it in terms of a sound money hypothesis uh, as an investment case and, and not to speak on behalf of wisdom tree or anything like that but in terms of a investable asset class it certainly seems to be developing that way and there may be you know certainly volatile and there's certainly a concentration of holders that can move the prices very quickly uh, but Bitcoin itself as a kind of an alternative to gold in terms of sound money you know there's a limited supply and it certainly does have advantages in some ways in terms of being able for remittances and other issues like that uh, and one other piece on Bitcoin, I had a there's a piece in CoinDesk at the end of the year by an author, Jill Carlson, who talked about Bitcoin as censorship resistant money. Um, so it's one thing to be in the U.S. and thinking about uh, government censorship of your money. It's another thing if you're in Venezuela, for example, or in uh, North Korea, where um, the government is not restricting your flows of capital in a constructive way. And Bitcoin as a censorship resistant money can actually be a very uh, effective way I think of enabling people to get around uh, the uh, the uh, authoritarian and kind of uh, dictatorships in that sense. And I was asking Dan if he would rather be paid in Bitcoin or in U.S. dollars today. Yeah, so I mean, that this is a fundamental question for the space. Uh, as as Will pointed out, it's an important hedge um, against the U.S. dollar. So it it um, you see there's institutional 
uh, players taking positions in Bitcoin. But you could ask the question, would I put my kids' college education in Bitcoin? With that kind of price volatility, am I, gonna, am I willing to risk that much on price volatility, whereas with, with the dollar... Um, that, right, you know, the stable the value. Question. It is hard, this question on stable value yeah. that moves up 100%. Yep. Now, of course, down. I wish I had put my kids' college education mm -hmm. in Bitcoin. When you first discovered it. Ago, right? And um, so it has moved up in, yeah. in, because it has important utility in the space. But there's not a sound investment thesis there. And so you'll see speculation, and that becomes somewhat dangerous. But I want to differentiate, just for clarity, the funds we're talking about from a crypto backed fund. So Wisdom Trees nicely released a crypto backed, a, a blockchain or Bitcoin backed ETF in the European market. That's different than what we're talking about doing here. So we're talking, in that case, you have crypto assets in a fund where you can get access to that fund through traditional shares. We're talking about the opposite. Tokenized funds are blockchain based shares of traditional assets. Mm. So whether those assets are treasuries or assets on the S&P 500, et cetera. And they gain the benefits of the transmittability, the um, ease of transactions that you get from blockchain networks. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, it's definitely, it's easy for terminology and stuff to kind of get jumbled here. It certainly does when kind of one media report picks up another media report, picks up another media report without ever talking to anybody. But um, it's, um, that, that distinction is important because... Uh, you know, like we, Wisdom Tree as a company did in, in Europe with uh, listing on the Swiss stock exchange of a Bitcoin-backed ETP uh, that was providing within the traditional kind of infrastructure access to this asset class uh, in terms of a providing the you know access in a secure way. Um, but what we're talking about here in this investment with the currency is about bringing the benefits of that technology to legacy kind of financial assets and being able to allow kind of traditional or not traditional, but uh, participants in the ecosystem today to kind of get access to things like treasuries or the S&P 500 in, in a way that could be more efficient and kind of meet them on their terms as opposed to making them pull their money out of what they're most comfortable using. And that solves an important problem for the blockchain environment. So if you're a, a blockchain enthusiast, the promise has always been liquidity, but compared to, to um, traditional financial legacy markets, there hasn't been the liquidity that's been promised. By bringing stable assets to the blockchain space, the kinds of places where institutions can park their money and then trade mm. from there, uh, we think that we're actually going to help usher in the liquidity that's that's been sought after. In, in like 30 seconds, why haven't they approved a product on Bitcoin yet, do you think? I, it's tough for, I, I feel uncomfortable commenting on uh, you know the regulators yeah. in that sense. I, I think what the SEC's point has been, there's there's a lack of kind of the the pricing of the of bitcoin is not sufficient yet for it to be an sec approved uh, exchange traded product or an etf um that there's no communication between different exchanges market surveillance is not present today uh, and it doesn't seem like they've been updating that uh since then um so uh, i think that's the been the comment but i, I don't have a personal yeah, yeah. kind of um, and Dan, as, as, as we think about pivoting towards like your your history working in the government to now running a company, any differences from government to entrepreneur, things you life lessons you've learned, how they compare? Yeah, so you'd think having worked in R and D and then in an innovation role within the government that it'd be highly related. The my experience there and working with tech would be very related to my startup experience working in tech but they're very different experiences. Um, within government, of course, you're using other people's money, taxpayer money, to drive um, R&D projects. You can, in many cases, take more risk, but there's a lot less willingness to fail, which means that uh, you won't get the kind of rapid experimentation that leads to real change. Um, the, the government itself is very resistant to change, so when folks, it's not a meritocracy, when, when you're, when your progression through uh, your your government career is not based on your the amount of value that you produce, but rather the the kind of network that you form, you you find that inside government circles, um, there's uh, effectively a mini mafia. When you enter the um, the entrepreneurial space, there's no safety net. Um, you've got to earn your way, and if you're not able to produce revenue, raise capital, 
you won't stay along. And if you don't learn how to do those things, you won't persist. There's no such uh, uh, signal in inside of government settings to continually improve your model. And um, as a result, you see less innovation in, inside of government settings. That said, some of the most important advances, the long run breakthroughs do come from government circles. Lasers, quantum computers, uh, are, uh, even the internet itself came from um, R&D in government settings. So it's, it is an important component. It's just different than um, this world, which I enjoy very much. Yeah, though it is quite stressful, and I think you age <laughs> ten times faster uh, in this world. In the private world, is is anything on this sort of quantum computing side? I hear that is like the big technology that we have to be looking out for. That, and especially in this crypto blockchain world, that quantum computing can disrupt all the encryption. And that, I mean, you know, they'll start mining Bitcoin as an example, but maybe it helps. It, it, create problems for encryption softwares? Where do you see quantum computing? Look, there's a, there, well, quantum computing is a very important technology. Um, it's, it is a ways out before it's practical to, to, to use. So we probably have 10 years. Though you wouldn't want to be surprised by a, a nation state who's invested a lot that we just didn't know about. China. Um, China's a good example. Um, you know, waking up in, in a couple years and finding out that I was wrong in my estimation. And they're able to break the keys associated with blockchain networks, rendering them useless, right? So we take this challenge seriously, as do regulators. So it's one of the reasons why we're not ledger dependent, as we, there are quantum resistant ledgers coming online. Hmm. Um, you, you, uh, you can update, for example, uh, the Ethereum model to a quantum resistant model, but it's what we do is we back things up off chain. And so if we were to wake up tomorrow and find out the Ethereum ledger had been wiped out or uh, Bitcoin's ledger had been wiped out, we effectively have backup records, which allow you to move back to um, traditional models or move to a new ledger. And we think this is very important. You can work at billions of dollars. It's not a national security threat if a ledger gets wiped out. But when you're talking about trillions of dollars of a nation's economy, you can't afford to take a chance that, that there's something we don't know about a major blockchain. Any other uh, sort of that big technology or technology developments? How do you guys stay at the forefront of technology in, in this space? Making where do you make investments as a startup uh, and all that? Well, obviously, people matters on this, and and having being really aggressive about going out and and finding the best people. But another strategy that we take quite seriously is agility. This is a hard thing to sell to investors that agility really matters, and, and we emphasize it. In fact, we've invested in it. I heard a, a great quote here recently. Someone was talking about the scalability of, of code, and they said there's really two kinds of systems. Systems that are built from the core to scale and systems that don't scale. So you, you can't, it's, it's really one or the other. You must focus on scale. You must focus on agility. And, and the reason why I say this is important is the blockchain space is evolving so very rapidly. The winners today will not be the winners tomorrow. And what we knew is we had to tap into the best as um, the ledgers themselves continue to evolve, as service providers continue to evolve. So we build an integration framework that allows us to pivot quickly. And that has paid dividends because we're able to stay on top at the forefront with each uh, each change in the blockchain space. And it, it is moving fast. One uh, one line that Dan's used with me that I, I think is a great lesson for running a company, but also for life is no matter how many smart people you have in your organization, there are always more smart people outside of your organization. And you need to be very effective at taking in feedback from outside the organization, lessons, wisdom from outside the organization the organization and incorporate it into your own organization. And giving credit where credit's due, that was a quote from um, Bill, Bill Joy from Sun Microsystems that I we've incorporated as a uh, core principle. Well, I just take offense. You don't think we have all the smart people in our room. I mean, uh, yeah, I know for sure that you get so many ideas. And the, and the world is interconnected today. Where you get ideas from on Twitter and online and the sort of whole ecosystem is there's so much access to knowledge. I mean, even Professor Siegel's worldview on why he thinks economic growth in the future is going to be higher than the past is just now you open up the world knowledge to China and India where you have a billion people who can innovate on what's out there so much better. You haven't seen it in productivity data yet. 
Jeremy, it's a huge point, and it's it's one that banks have missed in this space early on. So the big banks invested heavily in bringing internal blockchain teams with the assumption that we can build it best here, we'll get the best and brightest minds here. When it's a big world and things are moving fast. So the differentiator, and banks are now pivoting to this strategy, is to take advantage of the best ideas wherever they emerge. What really matters is how quickly you can adopt emerging technologies rather than can you build it yourself. I mean, you're seeing that with things like AWS and the Google Cloud and Microsoft Cloud. There's only be three cloud companies. And, you know, we used to have like a whole server team working on enabling our servers. And now you can't, I mean, just it just becomes so obvious. You think this is that's going to become obvious here? Yeah, I was asked the question recently who the, who the most important um, technology players are in the blockchain space. It's actually Microsoft and Amazon. They, they are. Blockchain is an infrastructure yeah. technology. They do infrastructure as good as it gets, and so you know, pay attention to their moves. Have they done anything in financial services yet? Um, so what they don't do is the compliance function. That's where yeah. we're focusing. So yeah. it actually turns out to be it's a bet that we're placing that in there in the end they will win. Um, that just like. You don't have to worry about which relational database you're using. You don't have to worry about if you're using Oracle or SQL Server. Those things, you spin them up and you get them with a click of a button in in the new cloud world. Same thing will be true of blockchain technologies. It's really, you know, like compliance, but also permissioning, right? That's a way to think about it, is being able to relate different databases. I, I had an anecdote, I heard an anecdote the other way that, you know, we see futuristic TV shows of the police and they're pulling up a... Uh, you know, someone who committed a crime and they see all these different things on there and every database comes in. That's not how it works today. These databases don't always talk to each other. Uh, and that's certainly something that is promising about this technology is allowing data to databases to speak to each other in a better way. I'm sure you saw that at the agencies in the aftermath of the intelligence breakdowns. Sometimes Hollywood is a little ahead of uh, the reality there, but that was a focus is actually fixing that how we share data um, appropriately. and. How you data is value, so how you permission moving data to the right players is is right at the heart of uh, the future. Will any thoughts on how you see Wisdom Tree's interest in blockchain or this technology or or what you're focused on on the corporate strategy team in 30 seconds? Any I, final I, closing thoughts? I think it's important to be innovative, uh, but doing it with the the right approach and always making sure it's within the investor's best. Uh, best uh, interest. It's not enough to innovate just for innovating sake. You need to innovate with the the end goal of improving, of improving client outcomes. And this is certainly uh, a project that we're undertaking with that in mind. And Dan, any final closing thoughts? Who else you thought should be benefiting from your world? Who should be looking for you? Uh, institutional players, the big banks. We, we have a technology. We're seeing a, an uptake in interest from a number of big institutions. Very good. And so it's been exciting. You know, Wisdom Tree invested in Securities last financial fundraising and uh, glad to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio to tell us all about your, your company and the future of fintech. Thanks, Jeremy. Well, thank you again for joining us. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. I'd like to, to thank our New York producers here, Emily Anton in the New York studio with us. We have our, our Philadelphia crew back home at Wharton, uh, P P Patty Hall and Dion Simpkins helping us out. You can always listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week as well. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.